notes in the back of the bulletin that just kind of helps us um, kind of stay centered as we work through God's Word together. And, and as we are here in 1 Peter chapter 4, it's just a, a continuation of where we have been. We've been walking through this letter of Peter writing to the church. He is not writing to a particular church. He's not writing to the first Baptist church in Galatia. He is writing to the church there in what is modern day Turkey. And he's writing to them about how it is that they live a Christian life. How it is that they live as a body of believers doing church the way that Christ had intended when Christ was on this earth. And so he is writing to them and is trying to encourage them that this is what They are to live like, this is what they are to be like, and this is how the world should see them in the days in which they're living in. And so by many extensions, there are very numerous things that you will find in the text that are applicable to us. We're living in a day and age that the question is, well, how do we live faithfully before God in light of where we're at? How do we live faithfully as a church to the Word of God while also navigating the concerns of this world and the, the, the concerns of the culture around us. And so that is what he is writing to. But some years before he is writing, there's a, another story I want to remind you of before we get to the text. You go back to Matthew chapter 3 and you see the story in Scripture where John the Baptist is set aside. He's set aside and he is foretold that he is going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene. You can go back after this and see back in Matthew chapter 3. He comes on the scene and he's telling everybody, oh, the Savior is coming. The Messiah is coming. Get ready. He is baptizing people in repentance and preparation for the Lord. Then you see that Jesus comes on the scene and he is pointing at Jesus saying, that is the Messiah. That is the one you should follow. You'll see some other gospel accounts that he he tells his followers, his disciples, you don't want to follow me. I must decrease. He must increase. You go follow Jesus. And then you get to Matthew chapter 11. And John the Baptist is in prison. He's in prison for speaking truth. He's in prison for calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. And he's sitting there in prison. And you go back to that passage there in Matthew chapter 11. And he sends word to Jesus and he says, are you the one? He's asking the question, are you really the Messiah. There have been scholars that have had different ideas or different interpretations of the exact nature, but the consensus is there that he is asking, all right, I'm sitting in prison. Most likely, we, he's thinking I'm going to die. In fact, he does die. Matthew 14, he does get beheaded for his stance, for what is true and what is right, but he is sitting there in prison, and he's wondering, he's wondering to himself, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you really, am I doing all this in vain, or am I doing this for the right reason? Now, I bring up John the Baptist because I'm just going to assume this morning that every single one of us have either been through trials, are going through trials, or will be going through trials in the future. And I don't know about you, I hope that you are more spiritually mature than I am, but there is a, there's a tendency in myself that when I face the trials that I face, the hindrances that I face, the obstacles that I face, the hardships, that I start to doubt. God, where are you? God, I thought the agreement was as I serve you and then you make my life easy. God, why is this happening? God, why me? And you start to have all these doubts about, God, I thought I was doing this and now you are doing that. And we find ourselves echoing the words of John the Baptist. Are you who you say you are? 
And are you going to be enough in the situation I'm in? That's what Peter is going to write about in this passage. He's writing to a church that is facing a variety of circumstances. Some of them are being burned alive for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Some of them are being blackballed from their family. They, they leave that Jewish tradition. They turn to the New Testament picture of Christianity and they're blackballed. They're, they're, they're disowned from their family and they're set aside. They're, they're losing their jobs. They're losing their incomes. They're losing their livelihoods. They're losing their place in the, the society and the culture. They're, 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 they're facing hardships on their families. And not just that, but then you have the Roman government coming along and saying that we are going to persecute you. We are going to chase you down. We are going to make life hard on you. And so you can have, you can imagine in your mind, you have these Christians that are sitting there saying, we thought get right with Jesus and life was going to be easy. And yet they're facing trials and persecutions. And the question is, God, where are you? So here in this text this morning, I'm going to read out loud, if you will follow along with me, 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 12 and read all the way down through the rest of the chapter. But Peter is going to address the question of trials. He's going to address the question of suffering. I don't know how your passage is titled there in your word of God, but in my, in my English translation, it is titled, this whole passage is, is titled, Suffering as a Christian. Peter is going to address the situations, the circumstances, the trials, the problems they were facing. And you may say, well, that was Peter writing to them then. Yes, I think many of the principles that Peter is going to give us and show us are still relevant today. And just as much as they were true then, they are still true now. So whether you have been going through a trial, whether you are in a trial right now, or whether you are going to be going into a trial, church, let us, let us hold fast to these principles and these truths that Peter gives us so that, so that we may live differently in the world in which we're in so that outside world looks upon us and says, you know what, they don't have it. As easy as we think they should, we don't understand how they can respond differently. We don't understand the difference in them, which then allows us to then say, it is not us, it is not the circumstance, it is not the condition, it is our Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice, verse 12, read along with me as I read aloud. Peter continues to write, he's writing this letter, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteousness is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. Peter is writing to that church, a struggling church, a questioning church, a doubting church, an oppressed church. And he's writing to them, wanting to encourage them to live differently from the world. And you see that there at the top of the notes, primarily I am just going to point to that he is calling them to have a different attitude in, face of the tri in, in sight of and in face of the trials and the circumstances 
that he is having. So he talks to them about this different attitude. You see in their notes, we're first going to look at back in verse 12. He's going to talk to them about the reality. The reality. See, notice back up in verse 12. He says, do not be surprised. In other words, what he's telling them is, is that this shouldn't take you off guard. The fact that you're having a flat tire, the fact that your boss doesn't understand why you need to be off on Sundays so you can go to church, the fact that people wonder why you don't jump in with them and you act in immoral ways, the, the, the reason why the world says, why don't you find this funny? He says, do not be surprised. And he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, if we were reading this letter in one setting, we would catch the connection. Turn back to the left in chapter 1 and verse 7, and, and, and Peter references this fiery trial. Back in chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor through revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, he's talking about their faith, and he's saying that in this Christian life, you live long enough as a Christian, your faith is going to be tested. You live long enough as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are going to have challenges to what you believe. You do this thing called church long enough, and the reality will come that it's not always roses, roses and daisies, and not every day is your best day. There are some Fridays that stink. Not every Friday is a great Friday. And so he says, remember of the reality, church. Remember that when it comes to your faith, I put there in your notes, faith is strengthened through testing. I believe that's what he's telling us there in verse 12. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He is reminding them that you, in your faith, you should know that this times are coming. Not only is faith strengthened through testing, but it's also revealed through testing. How many times do we get in the moment of decision and we have a crisis of faith and you see where, you see where people turn? Oh, there have been some nights that I have put those boys to bed. And I put those boys to bed, and they, boy, they're just, oh, daddy, you're the great. Oh, daddy, we're pals. Oh, daddy, we're just, we're just chummy, chum, chum, chum. And then one of them gets a bad dream in the middle of the night. Do they cry out for daddy? They cry out for mama. Why? Because it doesn't matter what they say to me when they're going to bed. When the trial comes, when the testing comes, we really know who their true devotion lies. It lies in mama. And sometimes we in our Christian faith, we come to church and we say, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, I'm faithful to him. Oh yeah, I depend upon Jesus 100% until that doctor visit comes. Or until that mandate comes. Or until that work schedule is released. Until that unexpected bill comes in the mail and the next thing you know, the true measure of our faith and the true source of our faith and the true place of our faith is questioned. So Peter wants to remind them. He says, do not forget the reality. This testing, this fiery trial, it's not just for the lost. It's not just for the saved. It's not just for the backslidden. This fiery trial is a result of living in a fallen world. And so when we leave this place this morning or this afternoon, whatever time we get out of here, we should expect when we walk outside these doors, we are facing a battle. We are facing a spiritual battle and we know that there is going to be fiery trials that we will walk into. Some of us accidentally, some of us intentionally, some of us behave our way into problems, but we will walk into these things and so we should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes. He, he talks about their faith being strengthened through testing. He talks about their faith being revealed through testing. And then he also tells them that you your faith, when it's grounded upon Jesus Christ, should expect testing. 
Why should you not expect to face trials and circumstances when Jesus did? John 16, 33, John, Jesus tells his followers, you are going to face tribulation. Why? Because I face tribulation. He tells them in the upper room discourse, you're going to have problems. Why should you expect to be treated any differently than I was treated? He tells them, the believers, the followers of Jesus Christ, you're going to face hardships, hindrances, and obstacles in this world because of who you belong to. And yet we have Christians. And they say, oh, no, 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 I shouldn't have any problems. When the problems come, it's, oh, well... What's God doing to me? Why is God allowing this to happen to me? And we start questioning the goodness of God. And so Peter wants to come in in just this verse 12, and he wants to remind them, don't forget the reality. Fiery trial comes to everyone. This testing of our faith comes to all of us. Every single one of us will face suffering or trials in our lives. The question is our response. <clears throat> so he picks it up there in verse 13, and he gives them the response. He says, so this is going to be the reality. The trials are going to come. The, the challenges are going to come. The obstacles are going to be there. That's the reality. But, 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 but the response is what reveals the heart of the believer. Now, we're living in a day and age that it's all about this hashtag. It's all about the meme world. And we got we to summarize these little pithy sayings in just a few words. So, so I put there, for some of you young individuals that kind of get into that kind of stuff, I try to put like four memorable maybe phrases there when we think about our response. Because the reality is, is more so than us older people in the room, you students are facing those challenges more than we ever did in our days. Pornography, immorality, drug abuse, substance abuse are much more prevalent now than they were 20 years ago. And so I want you young people to be thinking, okay, when it is, when I come to that trial, when I come to that challenge... How do I respond? Well, here in verse 13 down through verse 16, Peter's going to talk about four different responses. So I, I try to put him in a little, in a little catchphrase uh, language there, but he talks about rejoice is a choice. Rejoice is a choice. If you look back in verse 13, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You might jot down there in the side of the notes or maybe in the margin of your Bible, you might jot down Philippians 4 and verse 16. Four. This is what Paul writes. Now, keep in mind, when he's writing this, he's in, uh, the scholars tell us, the Bible scholars tell us that he is writing in a prison. He is not writing in our modern day thinking of a prison. He is in the worst of the worst places. And as he's writing this letter to the church there in Philippi, he's writing from this prison cell, probably being malnourished, probably being mistreated, probably being abused, and yet he is there. And in Philippians 4 and 4, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, if you understood the context in which Peter is in, you might think to yourself, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, Paul, how can you say rejoice? Paul, what do you have to rejoice in where you're at? Paul, you have nothing of which to look around and say, I can rejoice in this or I can rejoice in that. Well, that wasn't Paul's focus. Paul's focus was who he was in Christ. Paul's focus was his identity in Christ. Paul's focus was the, the image that he knew that this is just a temporary affliction. This is just a temporary moment. He realized that his eternity waited, and so he could look at them and say, rejoice. So you get back over to 1 Peter chapter 4, and Peter reminds us that rejoicing is a choice. Rejoice is a choice. And it's not just for you young students not for you young adults, it's for all of us in this room. We need to remember that rejoicing is a choice. 
We choose our response. We choose to rejoice. So he says in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Can you imagine that? Someone saying that when you have the afflictions and when you have the obstacles, when you have the hindrances, when the trials come, don't say, oh, poor me, or, oh, I need help, or oh, why is this happening? Or put your head down, or start feeling the Eeyore type of mentality. He says rejoice. Can you imagine what a difference that would make? Going to the doctor's office and the doctor saying your condition is terminal and you have two weeks to live, and you say, hallelujah! Two weeks and I get to see Jesus. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine that doctor's face? We don't rejoice the way we should. And Peter says there's a difference. There's a difference in our response and it's a difference from the world. And so when the world sees our response, they see a difference in us. So he says in verse 13, but rejoice. Rejoice is a choice. Then he goes on and he tells us, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So he takes it another step further. He doesn't just say, you know what, when you have a problem, when you have a trial, rejoice because you get to face the trial. He takes it another step. He says, when people are mean and rude to you, that means you're blessed. I know that you're better at this than me, but I struggle. I struggle with defensiveness. Did you hear what they said about me? Did you hear what they said to me? Especially when it comes to serving the churches and any type of leadership. Sometimes you, you can wear your feelings a little bit closer to the sleeve and you start saying, Jesus, God, 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 I don't deserve this. I don't deserve them and they don't deserve me. It's the idea that you start thinking, no, no, I've served you. I've been faithful to you. Why is this being allowed to happen to me? Why would those people be critical like that? Why would those people be judgmental like that? Why would those people be so hurtful like that? Why would those people be so negligent and oblivious to what I'm doing? And Peter says, for all of you in the church, when they cuss you, when they mock you, when they ridicule you, when they make fun of you, when they chastise you, when they bait you, be blessed. I don't have that all figured out. I don't want you to think that, oh, Spence just says it's just so easy. Spence does not say it's easy. Spence is a work in progress. But brothers and sisters, there's a principle there. Being blessed is the best. I would much rather be blessed in the eyes of God than be favored in the words of man. I would much rather be found faithful in the kingdom of God than be popular in the kingdom of man. I would much rather walk around knowing that I am blessed, not because of who I am or because what I've done, but know that I'm blessed because of who I am in Christ Jesus and be blessed in that and then let the world think what they will because I'm going to be faithful to my Savior. He tells us there in verse 14, he says, church, remember, it's your response. Rejoice is a choice. Being blessed is the best. Understand that this time comes, that this moment comes. Understand that there are ways to look at it and there's ways to interpret it. And understand that when we as a church are being faced with pressures and hindrances. I don't know how long ago, Chad, you, you and your family left from California, but I read reports about out in California that they're putting... Conditions on what can be said in the churches? What can be said from the pulpits? And we'd be naive to think that that day couldn't come here? I'm 40 years old. As long as I've ever lived. 
I know some of you had me beat. Good job. But I, that's the longest I've ever lived. But you know, when I was born, Reagan was fighting communism. We have come a long ways from Reagan fighting communism where we're at now. And there's a lot of things that you say, oh, I couldn't imagine that would have happened in 40 years. You just wait for the next 40. We have no idea. And, and what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, when you face the trial, when you face the pushback, when you face the hardship, remember, there is a reason to say, it doesn't matter. I'm blessed. Say what you want. I'm blessed. Attack me all you will. I'm blessed. There is nothing that this world can do, whether it's in the school system or outside the school system or in the workplace or outside the workplace. There is nothing this world can do that affects your eternity. doesn't matter what happens when you know who you belong to. So he says in verse 14, be blessed. Being blessed is the best. And then, and then you get down. He gets his little caveat there. In verse 15, because he doesn't want to give the assumption that, oh, you know what, if you're facing trials, it must be because you're right with Jesus. Because he says, there are sometimes, there are sometimes when you behave your way into a consequence. <laughs> my boys behave their ways into consequences a lot. I behave my way into a consequence quite often. But there, there's sometimes that you behave yourself into a situation and the chastisement, the correction, God comes in and he says, don't be doing that, knucklehead. That's not the path I have for you. That's not where I want you to go. Quit being rebellious. Quit being stubborn. And sometimes he brings these efforts in to correct you. You think about the, the wake-up strips there in the middle lane or on the side. I, I can't stand them. I pay for both sides of the road. I think I should be allowed to drive on both sides of the road. But they are there. So as soon as I get two inches off out of that line, there's that wake-up strip saying, no, get back, get back. And sometimes God does that. So Peter comes in in verse 15, and he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Something I want to point out to you. We talk about the, the, the murder and the thief, the evildoer. We're like, yeah, 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 those people, those people need to get their mind right. But then he says meddler. You go back to the original language and look at the, the meaning of the word. It's a gossip, a busybody. Somebody that just, nee, 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 nee. Can you imagine that Peter is equating the critics and the slanders and the gossips with the murderers and the evildoers? So he says, if you're suffering, make sure that you're suffering for the right reasons and make sure you're not suffering for the sin that you are guilty of. There are sometimes we face consequences of the truth, but by and large, Peter is writing to his saved church and he is writing to tell them that this should be a response. I, I want to pause here for a moment because that's why we may assume the majority in this room are saved. We'd be very naive to believe that every single person in this room is saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means that you realize that you've committed sins against the holy God. And because of that sin, that sin carries a penalty of death. Eternal separation before God. And you realize because of your sin that has separated you from a holy God... There's nothing that you can do. There is no money that you can give. There is no work that can be accomplished to repair that relationship. Only sinless, blameless lives are accepted as payment for your sin. And so God, knowing the, de the depth of your depravity, of my depravity, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. His son lived a sinless life. He died a death he did not deserve to die. He took a place of my sin and your sin died on the cross, buried in the tomb, rose on the third day, defeating death, thereby making it possible 
that when we repent of our sin and confess our sin and ask Jesus to forgive us of our sin, the Bible tells us that he is faithful to forgive us. So you might be here this morning and you might know that you're saved and you're going through a trial. May I encourage you, brother or sister, to be faithful. To make sure and have a biblical response to the struggles that you're in. But you might be here this morning and you may say, Spence, I've never made that decision and I'm going through the trials. It might be God's way of trying to get your attention to say, here I am, turn to me. So please do not let me give you false hope and to say just because it's a trial, that means it is of God. It might be God's way of trying to draw you to him. You might be here this morning and you not, might know that you're saved, but the reality is, is that you are living a rebellious, sinful, knuckle-headed life. And God may be bringing trials and struggles in your life today to say, hey, turn back to me, get right with me, come back to where I want you to come. And so when I talk about these trials that Peter is referring to, there are some times that you face trials. Trials as God's way of wooing you to himself. Sometimes you face trials as God's way of conforming you to himself. But then sometimes God brings trials into your life as a way of giving glory to himself. So he talks about this caveat that he puts there in verse 15. But then he goes on. He goes on in verse 16. Notice he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him not be ashamed. When, in other words, there is no shame in his name. There is no shame in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no reason for anybody in this room to feel guilty about being a Christian. There is no reason for anybody to say, yeah, I, I own a Bible. Yeah, 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 I listen to Christian music. Oh, yeah, I've got some verses memorized. There's no reason for any of us to be ashamed of who we belong to. I was so proud of Charles Davis this morning. He showed up, and he's got OSU orange on. I'm so proud of him. It's taken about 15 months to work on him, but I, I just, I'm so proud. He, he says it's not OSU orange. I, I know what it is. He, he know, I'm so proud of him. He's, he's willing to wear the colors. Well, we, we're, we're just using that to our advantage. <laughs> But it's one of those things that, you know, people will, will stand up and people will represent what they, what they affirm. They, they, will, they, will, they will represent what they like. They, they, they will wear a jersey. They will wear a, a hat with a theme on it. And they will wear the logo. And they're well, they, will, they will wear the colors, if you will, of what it is they support. And yet how many times do we have people come into this church and they leave this church. And the first thing they want to do is to put off all of the evidence that they're saved. And they're a follower of Jesus Christ. And they're part of a New Testament church. They want to put off all that evidence and put on the evidence of the world. And they mingle around the world. The world says, I can't tell the difference between a Christian and a lost person. Neither can other people in the church. So he talks about there's no shame in his name. But then this last one, I got, I got to move forward. I, I realize it's already lunchtime for some of you all because of the time change. But you go on and he talks about give glory with your story. Give glory with your story. In fact, if you look back there in verse 16, he said, but let him glorify God in that name. He's referring back to the name of Jesus Christ. That name Back in verse 13, he's talking about that name of Jesus Christ. And he says, when you're going through this struggle and in your response, understand, you can rejoice, you can be blessed, you don't have to be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to your story, give glory to God. How many times will you sit around and people will tell stories? Well, I remember back in 1915, I walked uphill both ways in the snow to school. 
Oh, well, I got you beat. I walked. I, walked, I did a handstand, and I walked on my hands all the way up, both ways, in the snow, to school, and it was raining, and a hurricane. Ha, I got you beat. And the other person comes along, I got you beat. I walked backwards like a crab. And we were having a typhoon, and it was sleeting at the same time. And it was an 80-degree incline that I went to school, and I was in school for three days before I got to come home. Ha, and you have this deal where you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Instead of the glory coming to us when it comes to the story of our life, why not give glory to God? I once was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Jesus lifted me. Oh, brothers and sisters, what it is about our story that points to God. People say, why are you in church? I'm in church because Jesus saved me. Why do you? Why do you serve? I serve because Jesus saved me. Why is there a difference in your response with your rejoicing and your blessingness and, and what it is that you proclaim? Why? Because there's a difference that Christ has made in me. He talks about their response and he talks about giving glory with your story, about letting your life be one giant story, talking about the redemption of Jesus Christ in your life. This is who I was and this is who I am now. This is who I was before Christ and this is who I am after Christ. This is what I, where I was headed and this is where I'm headed now. So he talks about the reality. He talks about the response quickly. He talks about the resolve. The resolve. <clears throat> he talks about in verse 17 and 18 about this judgment. And, and some people may say, well, what kind of judgment is he talking about and what is he referring to? I believe what he's saying is that the time is going to come. Everyone will one day stand before God. Hebrews 9 tells us, to the point of man to die once and after that comes the judgment. We're reminded that there will be a time that every single one of us will give an account. 2 Corinthians 5, the beam of seed of Christ tells us. The great right throne of judgment there in Revelation. We're all, we're reminded throughout Scripture that there's a time coming that we're going to give an answer to God for the lives of which we live. And it's not just the lost that are going to give an answer to God. It's the saved also. They're going to give an answer to God. Well, Spence, you mean i got to still answer to Jesus even though I know I'm saved? Yes, because he's going to look at you and he's going to say, I saved you and what would you do with it? I gave you the gift of my Holy Spirit and what would you do with it? I gave you my word, so what'd you do with it? I gave you opportunities, so what'd you do with it? And it's not a judgment or an examination as if you're going to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation. I'm just saying that there is a time coming, Bible, that the scripture tells us that we're going to give an account. In fact, that's why Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, I want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant, because he understands that he, went, he stands before Jesus. He doesn't want to stand ashamed or feeling guilty or having any regrets. He wants to be able to stand there before Jesus and say, I gave it all to you, boss. I gave it all to you, Jesus. I gave everything. So he talks about this revolve. He, he, he talks about the judgment that is coming. But skip down there to verse 19, and that's where we're just going to finish this morning. He says, therefore, so he talks about this resolve. So because of this, what should we do? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, he says, trust in God's will. Trust in God's will. I realize that's easier said than done. I realize some of you say, well, well you know, if you could tell me what God's will is for me today and in the future, it would be a lot easier to trust. That's not the way it works. 
We trust in God's will because we do not know what the future is, but we know He knows what the future is. I'm amazed at how many people listen to the weatherman and they still believe and trust in the weatherman. I'm telling you, there is not another profession out there where you can be wrong 95% of the time and keep your job. There is not another profession out there that you can be wrong 95% of the time and people still listen to you and believe what you have to say. But it's not that we're trusting in the weatherman that they're making their best guess based upon their best models or their best prediction. We come realizing that you don't know the future, I don't know the future, but God knows the future, and we trust that God's future is what we need. So we trust in God's will, as Peter talks about the resolve. Trust in God's will. Not just that, but rest in his goodness. He says, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. He says, rest in the goodness of God. I realize that God may not always seem good. I realize that God may not always come across as good to you. I realize there is all kinds of people in this world saying, well, if God was really good, then why is this stuff happening? Well, you know what? I am not God. So why can you believe that God is good? Because he sent his son to die for me when I didn't deserve it, when I didn't have it coming. He knew me from eternity past and he knew the Spence was going to have no way to save himself. So because of his love and his goodness for me, he sent his son that did not deserve to die, that did not deserve to take on flesh and take my place. He sent his son for me. And you know what? It doesn't matter what the doctor says. It doesn't matter what the circumstance says. It doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what the society says. It doesn't matter what happens with fallen people acting in fallen ways. No matter what happens, I know that my God is good because of what my God has done for me. So he says there's a resolve. There's a resolve in, there's a resolve in knowing that, that, that you can trust in God's will, that you can rest in, God, rest in God's goodness, and you can live for God's purpose. I don't have all the answers. And Peter's not going to give us all the answers. There's so many questions I come into this text and say, yeah, but Peter, what about this? And, and yeah, but Peter, what about that? And while we may not have all the answers that we want to have answered in the Word of God, we can trust that God gives us all the answers we need. So he tells us, he reminds us the reality, talks about the response, <coughs> and then calls us to be resolved. So what do we do? How do we take this and then apply it to our daily lives? Just three ways, and, and I just want to provide some practical application in how it is that we then take what Peter is saying and walk out these doors and put it into practice. The first thing is this. This life is not about you. This life is not about you. And you, you, you and I can look back and, and be in the adult stage or maybe the grandparent stage and be like, man, these kids, these kids are so narcissistic. We were talking about life last night, about all the selfies and, and the duck lips and the tongue being stuck out and all these selfies. I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't even know what selfie was. That, that wasn't even a, a word. And then, but all these, 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 these young people are walking around. All they're doing is taking pictures of themselves and throwing it on social media, wanting to see people. What, wanting to see what people do. And so you have adults or even people older than me, they're like, I just don't understand where they get this from. They get it from us. Who taught them that it's all about them? Their parents that said it's all about us. And whether you're 80 years old or whether you're 8 years old, we need to be reminded on a daily basis it's not about us. 
It's not about you. This thing called the Christian life, it's not about your ease. It's not about your comfort. It's not about you getting what you want. It's about God. It's not about you. That would go a long ways in having, helping us interpret the life and the situation in which we're in when we remember that it's not about me. The doctor's visit is not about me. It's about God's glory. The flat tire on my way when I'm late to be someplace, it's not about the flat tire. It's about God's glory. It's about my response. It's not about when they malign us or they persecute us or they make fun of us. It's not about us getting even or settling a score. It's about God's glory through us. We realize it's not about you. And then secondly, remember, trials are not final for the believers. They're not final. There's nothing this world can do to us that changes our place 10,000 years from now. Trials are not final for believers. I realize that there's some situations that I have that, that I may have in front of me that you may say, well, it's easy to say that when you have your health and when you have this and you have that. I'm just telling you, brothers and sisters, it's not saying because I can testify from personal experience. I'm saying based upon the word of God, God's word reminds us it doesn't matter what you face. In this world, it is not the final for the eternity to come. All right, Spence, so I realize it's not about me. I realize that the trial and the suffering has a temporal part to it. But since, how do I have a good attitude going through it? Fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. There's been a lot of things that I've done over my 16 years of married life that only make sense because of my love for Jaylene. <laughs> not because I wanted to, not because it was my idea, but because of my love for her. And brothers and sisters, I know you can come to church and you can say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm here in church. And oh, oh, yeah, you know, I'm looking the part. But are you really in love with Jesus? Well, that seems kind of weird. Isn't that kind of an awkward way to put it? Why is it an awkward way to put it? Jesus is in love with you. Why not be in love with Jesus? I'm not talking about being friends. I'm not talking about it being dependent upon your circumstances or your life. I'm talking about having an attitude that I am in love with Jesus. You ever heard the name Oscar Bernadette? This is 1888. <clears throat> Some people called it the scandal of the century. It was Prince Oscar Bernadette. And he was the next in line to be the king of Sweden. Now back in the late 1800s, Sweden and Norway were the same country. And so his father, Oscar II, was actually king of Norway and modern-day Sweden, and his son Oscar was next in line. And up until this point, Oscar was a very accomplished naval officer, had been in the Navy for 25 years. There was all kinds of expectations and great opportunities that lay in front of Oscar. And everybody thought, oh, he is going to make a phenomenal king when that time comes. March 15th of 1888, the scandal breaks. Oscar gets married to a woman by the name of Ebba Fulkilia. And you may say, what's so big about a prince getting married? Well, the problem was is that she was the handmaiden or the lady-in-waiting to his sister-in-law. If you get stuck on some of the vernacular, what it was is his sister-in-law, that was, that was the woman that cared for all of the needs. That was the, the commoner woman to his sister-in-law, and yet he marries her. 
Now, back in that day, in the late 1800s, marrying commoners were not allowed. It was not allowed for anybody in the monarch or anybody in the royal line to marry a commoner person. So in order to marry Ebba, Prince Oscar Bernadette had to abdicate, means give up his title, give up his position, give up his place in the kingly lineage, and assume a life in the common public. People would, right, it was, it was called, the, some people called it the scandal of the century because there was all these questions about why would a, the prince, the, the next king of the country, why would he give up all of this future to be a husband to a maid? What they didn't realize is that Oscar was a follower of Jesus Christ. And then on a couple of occasions, Oscar and Ebba had attended church in Amsterdam together. And through them attending church together, Ebba had been very influential in the spiritual growth and the spiritual maturity of Oscar. And through that relationship in the church and through that relationship in Jesus Christ, they fell in love, not just with the Lord, but they fell in love with each other. And they, God was putting in their heart a greater desire to love Jesus and to love one another, rather to love their position and their status in life. So they came to the conclusion, he came to the conclusion, that I'm going to give this up because of my love for Jesus and my love for her. He gave it up. They left the kingly estate, that kingly line. Had God blessed them with five children. And they lived from 1888 through his death in 1953, I think. They faithfully served the Lord. In fact, one person said his love for the Lord determined his life in this world. But there was all kinds of people that asked questions. They said, why? Why would you do this? It doesn't make sense. Why in the world would you give this up? So Oscar sat down and tried to write a response to all the people with questions. And this is what he said. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. 